So it's New Year's Eve 2015. I'm sitting in my kitchen with Ken Kawashima, also known as Sugar Brown. How are you, Ken? Good. Or Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing this. So I think this is weird, but I've done probably 400 or so interviews, and you might be the first Japanese interview I've ever done. Well,、uh... <laughs> Well, I'm not Japanese by birth, but, um, and um, I'm Japanese Korean, actually. But I'm happy to say that I'm the first、uh, Japanese Korean、uh, guy you've interviewed on your, on your blues podcast or whatever it is here. I know this is a silly question, but you were, you were born in the States. So、yeah. I presume, do you consider yourself American beyond everything else, or is it more, you were raised more Korean? I'm nothing. I consider myself <laughs> really, I have no allegiances except,、uh, you know, I don't have really allegiances to, to these nations, you know. And I guess I'm one third American, one third Japanese, one third Korean. But I mean, legally, I'm all American, or、right. as they say, American.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but.、Um, No, I, I, I did think about sometimes, you know, I would often be asked that very same question, which, do, you know, are you more of, especially I would ask, be asked that question from a Korean person or from a Japanese person because they always want their team to win, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're always hoping to get a big, you know, get a, get a little、uh, debate going or something, you know, and I just refuse those games and. Yeah,、I'm, I guess I'm more curious、and、as to. I, I settled my accounts with、uh, you know, my questions about you know, identity and so on. I wrote a book about it in 2009 called The Proletarian Gamble Korean Workers in Interwar Japan. And I, I, I wondered myself, you know, what is the history of Japan and Korea like? And I looked at their modern history, and it was a very conflicted, tense、uh, history. And I wrote a book about it. And so, you know, I'm neither one or the other. And,、um, but as you were growing up, like,、yeah. did, you, did you celebrate any Japanese cultural days or Korean cultural events?、Uh, yeah, some.、Uh, for example, in Korea, around, around this time, New Year's Eve, we'd get New Year's Day, we'd get up and、uh, basically children get money. Right. Know? <laughs> you know, same thing in so, Japan. Yeah, right. But we adopted a Korean,、um, the Korean、uh, ritual of. You know, expressing、uh, thanks to your elders and、uh, they give you money. <laughs> That's the way it should be. And that was a, that was a good ritual.、Um, and some food, you know, my mom would cook.、Uh, she learned my mother's Korean, but she learned and lived in Japan. And so she learned how to cook Japanese food really well and would make these delicious、uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Yeah, because New Year's is a big thing for Food items, you know. Yeah. Just stuff your face on New Year's Day with that stuff, you know. Exactly.、Um, you grew up in Bowling Green? Yeah, Bowling Green, Ohio. And this, was this because your dad taught there?、Or? Yes, my father、uh, did a PhD in history at Harvard University、uh, in the late 60s and then got a teaching job at Bowling Green State University in the Department of History. So, I wonder, you also being a professor at University of Toronto,、mm-hmm. if, if your dad's, if it was influenced by your father's. Oh, for sure.、Yeah. Okay.、Oh. So, you, when you were growing up, you just, did you think that you wanted to be in the educational system and teach at university? 
At some point in high school, I thought it was a good idea. Uh, before I, I didn't know, but at some point, basically after I started working part-time jobs, I started thinking, what kind of job do I want? And I thought, I don't want a job where I have to wake up in the morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> and, and, and my dad kept telling me, he's like, this is a good job, Ken, you know, you can set your own schedule pretty much, teach what time you want to teach. Okay, so is that the way it works? If and you're then, a university teacher, you can set your class, to, like you don't have to t teach a course at 9 a.m.? That's right. Yeah. Good stuff. Good yeah. planning. Yeah, and summer vacations, uh, you know, you, get, you don't have to teach over the summer. Right. So I thought, I put two and two together. And I, <laughs> I thought, that's, uh, that's kind of right up my alley. <laughs> but you chose Asian studies. Yes, because I was, I was interested in, in Asia, Japan, in Korea, my family's background, basically, and I, I studied, uh, I was, I, well, I went to Japan when I was 16 on an exchange program, and before then, I didn't really have much uh, deep connection to Japan. It was just a strange foreign country to me, but I went on this exchange program when I was 16, where there was two kids from every state in the United States picked hmm. through this, through the U.S. Senate. Okay. So I got to meet my senator, John Glenn, the famous astronaut. Hmm. Yeah. That's impressive. So I went over there and it was kind of a big deal uh, for me. Uh, and I stayed with the host family and I got to know Japan. I started uh, enjoying Japan. What, what, would you, what would have been the thing that you learned? The, like what made an impression on you the most back then? Well, I guess the language, you know, I, I learned the language over in Japan. Hmm. And I didn't know the language. I heard it, my father speaking it, but I didn't... I, I knew a little bit when I was a baby, um, but I lost it between the ages of, say, three and, I don't know, 15, you know. I could understand it, I could recognize it, but I couldn't speak it, except short phrases, and I certainly couldn't read the language. But when I m went over there, I started to learn the language, and it became like this other... Uh, like a different, I became, I, I felt like I was becoming Japanese. Interesting. You know, because I could speak very well, very fluently. And there was this recognition, you know, I don't know, it was a very unique feeling for me because living in Ohio, I never spoke Japanese, obviously. You know? Did you feel any, not racism, but did you feel different from the kids that you grew up with in Ohio? In Ohio? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, well, you know, these kinds of things, you don't know, you don't maybe know that you're different until someone tells you, you know. So, but it was, yeah, okay, but... So, I mean, that's my, that's a way of saying that, you know, there were, there, you know, I, yeah, I, I felt, I had friends, though, I was very social, I always played and played sports and stuff, and... um but when I was a real little kid, maybe like between five and six, seven, you know, little kids teasing me about basically my eyes. Right. And I was, I remember the first, you know, kind of time that happened. I thought, I don't know what they're talking about. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? They keep like pulling their eyes up. It's like, my eyes don't look like that. What the fuck are they talking about? I looked in the mirror. I literally was like, my eyes do not look like this. They are exaggerating, you know. But then again, now I look back at pictures when I was a little kid, and I was like, yeah, I was a slanty-eyed kid. <laughs> so, 
So, but it hurt my feelings, of course. So you did you feel know. it, like you did feel. Yeah, yeah. Pain. Yeah. yeah, you know, little racist comments, and then it, sometimes it got physical in junior high school. You know, some bullies. You know, just these meatheads. Uh, but I presume I, you I remember probably... a couple of them. You know, they just for some reason they just hated me. Yeah. You know, and just would go out of their way to like push me or shove me or elbow me in the hallway, that kind of stupid yeah. thing. And I'd push back, and then he'd push me back, and then we'd have a little fight, and then I'd usually get slammed in a locker, you know? <laughs> Bloody nose, you know. But I presume in, in your mind, you probably felt no different than, than anybody else. Well... Like, you probably thought, I'm an American kid? Yeah, there was a point where I... I remember laughing with my mom and dad saying like, I just tell them I'm American. And, um, but uh, at the same time, I, I think I increasingly started to feel um, not so much different, but I just felt like I understood a little bit better what I could, what I was about. Mm-hmm. Especially after I went to Japan, I felt much more confident because this program selected two people from each state to go. And I felt very, lucky you know and it like took me to another level where i could meet new student new people from all over the world across the united states like the best you know high school kids but what was the selection process like why why were you chosen it was called the youth for understanding program It was a u.s senate sponsored exchange program for teenage for high school kids so you're so i i wrote an application and i submitted it and i got it I spent a summer in Japan for free. With and it changed your life. It it did because, you know, it showed me a place beyond Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know, like the people I could meet who went on this program, they were amazing people. Uh, multiracial, too, I would add. I met black kids, Hispanic kids, you know, other Asian kids, and um, white white people, too, who, who you know, uh, they were just brilliant people. And... You know, that changed my life, and uh, yeah. When did music come into your life? I was really deeply into music, uh, I think from... Well, there's two ways to look at it. I was I was taking piano lessons ever since I was a little kid, mm-hmm. eight years old, and, but, and I was playing classical music with this teacher who was a, a Johann Sebastian Bach specialist who played harpsichord and stuff like that. <laughs> So I was learning that stuff, but... Um, but that was more of a thing that your parents put you in. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and there was moments when I enjoyed it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there were moments when I enjoyed it. I, but eventually I grew to hate my teacher. Um, <laughs> she uh, turned out to be uh, this, I don't know, just a kind of a strange woman who, who is, it turns out, looking back, going through a marital crisis, who then, you know, her... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, um... So, but until that point, was but, it all uh, but, classical music? No, it was. It, I, that's all I was doing on the piano. But when I was not playing the piano, I was listening to music uh, very deeply, and especially starting around in junior high school. Yeah, I start. I was listening to. Uh, um. Well, I guess it was more. It was. It was late. Late junior high, early high school. I started deeply listening to what we called um, 
you know, college radio. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, R.E.M. Uh, was one of my favorite bands. And 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 then around, I was listening to all kinds of music, but they all kind of were in the same world, like, to me at least. Bob Dylan, listened to Bob Dylan for the first time. Uh, the Grateful Dead, The Velvet Underground, which which I still love. And Dylan, all these bands I still listen to and love today. Um, and a little bit of blues. Who would that have been? It was weirdly John Hammond. Why weirdly? Well, it was by accident. Oh, okay. Because I, lo- I listened to some TV commercial and liked the music. I didn't know what it was. I went to the local record store called Finders in Bowling Green, Ohio. Still there today. Great music store. And I said, what's that What's that music? And he's like, oh, that's blues. I said, you know that commercial? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? what is that music? And he's like, that's blues. And I said, oh, well, uh, what do you got to offer for me? What record? And he's like, well, this just came out. This is really good. And it was John Hammond Live. The red cover. Yeah, 1983. Yeah, Rounder Records. And I bought it and I took it home. I put it on my record player and was just kind of speechless for a while. Well, that's pretty intense stuff. Intense, it like you know that. It was intense stuff. That the lone, you know, that lonely, screaming harmonica of his too. You know, it just kind of blew me away. But uh, I was basically just really getting into the Velvet Underground and Bob Dylan. Were you playing guitar or anything else at this no, point? No, I wasn't playing piano? guitar. I, just piano, and I was. I eventually started experimenting with a new, uh, ex- with some basic uh, jazz stuff on the piano with a new teacher, who replaced the Baroque uh, teacher there. Yeah. Um, so you kept up. The, the but picture. I quit piano in, when I was when I left uh, Bowling Green okay. for Chicago. And you went to Chicago not because of the blues. Mm-mm. I knew about the blues in Chicago, but I went there because I was accepted as an undergraduate student at the college at the University of Chicago. And I applied to that university hoping I would get, get in. Um, and I miraculously got in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I didn't have the best, uh, you know, SAT scores and things like that, you know. So I was nervous, but I really wanted to go to study there. So because of the blues or just because of Chicago? Because of Chicago, because of the education that they offered to their undergraduates. Okay, so blues had nothing to do with this? It had nothing fundamentally, no. But I knew that Chicago was full of blues. Right. And that was just... But it wasn't a reality to me because blues at that point was just a kind of genre of music of, of records to me. It wasn't living. Right. You know, and so... But it did, so then as soon as I landed in Chicago, basically, I started going to blues clubs. Yeah. So, I mean, I just knew that was, and I happened to meet good friends who were already there, um, who were kind of uh, conduits, you know, to the blues world. Can you share a moment with me that, that in the early stages of going to these blues clubs, something that you might have witnessed that made you go back more often I used to go um, hmm. well I, I first of all um, there was a guy at the University of Chicago who was who was an older student 
named Dave Waldman. I don't know if you know him. He's a harmonica player, a great harmonica player. And he used to play with Eddie Taylor and Tail Dragger. He quit Columbia University in the 70s. He was a little geeky uh, guy from New York City <laughs> who came and um, played uh, incredibly, incredible blues uh, harmonica. And he introduced me to um, Tail Dragger, you know, who I started playing with. And, but when I first, first started going out, I guess it was as, just as a listener and, but also as someone who wanted to play harmonica. Okay. So very quickly you wanted to be a harmonica player. Yeah. Uh, I, cause yeah, I, I, I picked, I, I listened to little Walter when I was 18 in Chicago, Dave Waldman put me on it and I just immediately wanted to play harmonica. So it was just like that. I listened to it one time and I thought, I want to be a harmonica player. And I just played harmonica as much as I could. And so I, um, I started going out to local clubs on the south side, like Lee's Unleaded Blues um, and Brady's on 47th Street, which was a real, like a speakeasy with a little like a liquor store in the front and like a small back bar for about 10 people, you know, and I'd go there and I'd walk up to Vance Kelly or something and say, hey, can I sit in on harp? How good were you? Like, how do I don't know if your classical background and piano had any help in learning the harmonica, but like how long did it take you to get comfortable with playing the harmonica or being... I'd say about a year. Okay. A year to... But I was playing every day. And, was, and mainly just listening to albums and copying, or yeah, and I'd go hear Dave Waldman. You know, he would play harp with uh, with Jimmy Rogers and Pine Top Perkins and Willie Smith and and Fuzz Jones every every week or so at uh, Blues on Halstead. So I'd hear amplified harp, his harp, you know, and I was basically copying Waldman style. And even today, you know, there's a clear Waldman, I think, influence on my harp playing. Um, but that's not an easy thing with a harp because you don't see what they're actually doing. Like no. with a guitar or yeah, bass, you no. can say what you they're just, doing. You just got to figure it out pretty much on your own. I mean, Waldman, he would, you know, he never gave me a lesson formally, but I would play things like here. I would play like the line from uh, like a little Walter song, like uh, um, my babe or whatever, you right. know, and, and I would I would play the line, and he would say, "No, no, no, it's not that. No, no, no. You gotta bend that third hole there. No, or no, you don't bend the third hole there. You know, things like that." But I had to learn how to bend. On my, he taught taught me tongue blocking technique on the harp instead of the pucker technique, and mm -hmm. and once I figured out how to bend a note, you know, using the tongue blocking technique, I was I was. Was that it? Was that the secret? That was the secret, basically. That was the secret. Then I could play. I could start playing what I want, what I wanted to play, you know. Well, can, can you give me a time, um, a, a sense of when this was, what year that would have been? This would have been 19, I started University of Chicago as an undergraduate in 1989, graduated in 1994, stayed on for a master's in 1995 to 96. So I started playing harp around 1990, 91. And was the scene healthy? What was the Chicago scene like? It was, uh, well, I was, you know, I don't, I didn't have a total picture of it, really. It was fragmented. 
but what I was able to see was on the south side where I lived, there would be there was a there would be people playing blues on the street. Is right. what my point is. Okay. You know, occasionally you would just walk around uh, Hyde Park and you'd see this guy playing blues on the street in front of a fish market, um, and with a little trio, drum, bass, guitar. And my friend Waldman, of course, would be sitting in sometimes, you know, and, and, um, it was, and then on the South side, I'd go to Lee's Unleaded and, and see, uh, uh, different bands playing down there. And it was, it was a lively scene for Could sure. And on the North side, I was, you know, still, there were guys, the masters, you know, who played with, uh, like Jimmy Rogers, mm-hmm. he was still relatively you know healthy um his son was starting to play with them a little bit more but i used to go see them play i used to basically see muddy's band you know uh minus muddy but willie smith fuzz jones on bass calvin jones and pine top and then usually waldman on harp and uh that to me and then uh waldman had a band called the ice cream men and with Steve Cushing, the DJ and Scott Dirks and Illinois slim. And they would play every week at Lily's uh, also on the North side. And they'd bring in big Wheeler, Jimmy Lee Robinson, different singers to front the band and including then tail dragger. So for a kid coming from Ohio, yeah, who wasn't really, familiar with the blues scene did you did you appreciate or understand not the enormity but the history of what was going on or what you were seeing like did you or did you just not look at it that way i was learning it i was learning the history as i was going along i mean i was learning the music also as i was going along i mean i was doing i don't know how i was organizing my day but i was <laughs> I mean, because I was listening to records. I was buying records like crazy. Mm -hmm. That was my passion. You know, my hobby basically was buying records and then going home, listening to them, and then going out to the clubs and listening to similar things, you know. When did you go to school? (laughs) Oh, I went to school during the the morning, you know, morning, and then in the afternoon. I studied in the afternoon, and, and then, you know, usually two, three nights a week, I'd go out to the to the bars and come back around midnight. So very quickly you wanted said to. you wanted to play piano, you wanted to learn how to play the harmonica. Yeah. And then soon after that you wanted to start playing with people. Yes. And the goal was always, what was the goal at that point? Just to play and hang out or was there ever thought of, I want to do this for a living? Or? No, 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 never, ever. No, that never, ever crossed my mind. Because? I mean, I thought, well, once, the only, at the beginning point, no, I just, the goal was, I just want to play this music. I want to play with other people. Right. I'd never played in a band before, you know, and watching uh, Dave Waldman play harmonica with Jimmy Rogers and Willie and Fuzz and Pine Top and then listening to those blues man's music on the records, it just, the goal was just to play, you know, just learn it and play. And, um, and learn the songs, you know, learn the songs. Right. Um, and so for me, it was like learn every little Walter song I could, memorize them, play them live, 
you know, if, if I could, I was started to play in bands around then too, you know. And how, how was it, how were you accepted when you first came to the harmonica and said you want to join the jam or whatever? Well, no one ever, uh, no one actually ever outright rejected me. Yeah. Or said no. Yeah. I, I don't recall a single time someone said you can't sit in. And I was, uh, shameless looking i mean embarrassingly shame i remember one time i was taking a class at the university of chicago by professor wong who was this chinese american guy teaching a class on jazz and he was a famous trumpet player and he set up some gig at the public library with sunny land slim and lewis myers hmm. duo and he told me he's like ken i know you love blues well, you should go to this public event. Sunnyland and um, Lewis Myers are playing at the public library. And I, sure enough, I showed up. And, and without thinking, I packed my harmonicas, thinking maybe, you know, I could. <laughs> so they start playing for about a half an hour. And then I just walked right up to Lewis Myers. And I said, can I sit in on harmonica? And he's like, right now? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I have a harmonica. He's like, okay. And I blew some little Walter stuff, you know, what I could. And he, he was very gracious. And I played, so I could say I played with Sonny Land and Lewis, <laughs> Lewis Myers, That's you know. But good. it was, uh, looking back, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I did that. But I was really naive, you know. I mean, I was Is that what it was? Or do you kind think of it was a naive, real? kind of a naive Tay, I think. But it was kind of an innocent... You know, how did you get hooked up with Tail Dragger? So I started going to Lily's, this club on the north side, where the ice cream men were opening, well, were playing every week, and Tail Dragger was one of the singers on their rotation. And I was friends with Waldman and the other guitar player, Rock and Johnny Bergen. You probably know, and mm -hmm. and they called me up. Uh, they would call me up every time I'd go, you know, because also I'd ask them to sit. <laughs> And uh, but they eventually, I think you know, uh, respected my my limited playing uh, enough that you know they wouldn't be too uh, whatever. They were nice and they let me sit in and and I remember I played uh, so Tail Dragger then was singing with them and they called me up to play harmonica and he he asked me if I knew uh, Baby Please Don't Go and if I could play it on the harmonica and I could because I knew the song. I was like. <laughs> I know that one, you know. <laughs> I know that one. And then he's and right after that he said, You wanna play harmonica in my band? One place where we played the most was called the fifty one oh five club on fifty one oh five West North Avenue near Laramie. And um and then the Delta Fish Market on Jackson and Kedzie, which was like paradise. <laughs> Why? I know you said in the in your bio it says that it's like heaven on earth. It was like heaven on earth to because me. it was just a, a world completely different from anything I knew before. And it was uh, a very free space. Well, okay, the Delta Fish Market, just to set the record straight, is basically a gas station on the corner of Jackson and Kedzie that was transformed into a fish market. 
So if you imagine your regular gas station, <coughs> there's the office and then there's the the island, the, the, <coughs> the room where they, you put in your cars, right? So they took out all the stuff in the garage part and they put huge uh, water tanks to transport live catfish from the Mississippi Delta every week hmm. by truck. And then they, and tail dragger was one of the drivers of the truck. So they'd bring up fresh catfish and whatever fish from the Mississippi Delta in the summer months. And basically it was only in operation, I think, in the summer months. Um, and Or maybe only on a very limited basis, you know, beyond that. Uh, and then so they'd bring the f- live catfish, put it in the tanks, you know, transport in this crazy truck with the tank. Mm-hmm. And then they'd kill the fish there with a baseball bat. And then they, you know, like take all the scales off and uh, cut it up and you could take it home or you could have it filleted and eaten right there on the spot with some fries and hot sauce and a beer. And there's a band playing. And in the parking lot of this establishment, there's a huge, maybe 30 foot stage with a roof on it where there's live blues every weekend from about eight. 7 p.m. until about 2 in the morning. Hmm. And so we played there every weekend for a couple of years in the summer. It had been in existence, I think, since the early 70s. Um, and people like uh, Eddie Taylor, uh, Detroit Jr., Sunnyland Slim, Tail Dragger, um, and a lot of West West Side blues guys used to play there. So your life back then would have been going to school and playing the blues. Going to school, waking up in the, you know, often early, you know, going to class, studying in the library in the afternoon, and then studying at night, and then sometimes going out to a club at night. That's for the first couple of years and then the last couple of years I was basically going to school and then sometimes we were playing four nights a week so then I, I was I would just study during the afternoon and then somehow I made it work I don't know I just, I just... but the, the focus is always on finishing school and not, yes and you never thought I'm going to be a full-time musician or did you Honestly, I didn't think that. I I decided to stay in Chicago for my master's degree, however, partly because I wanted to keep playing music. There's no question I wanted to keep playing music, but I never thought I would. I always, to be honest, I considered it just to be a kind of... I don't know. I didn't have aspirations to be a full-time musician. Um, Tell me what, from what, what you were witnessing playing with people like Tail Dragger and... Rock and Johnny and whoever else. What, how you saw being a full-time musician, what that meant? Yeah. Uh, it meant a lot of work, you know. It meant a lot of work. Um, a lot of work and not much money. That's right. That's right. That's right. A lot of work and, and not much money. I saw the fight over money for gigs on the West Side. And these were, you know... 
for example, uh, some uh, black musicians on the West Side would would uh, get angry at Tail Dragger and say, "How come you're hiring some Chinaman, some white boy, when you got 17 other black dudes who can play better than them or need a job?" Um, But uh, yeah, so I knew it was it was hard hard times. I mean, even Dave Myers, who of the Aces, who played with Little Walter, he was he would occasionally do a gig with Tail Dragger, thirty five dollars a night as a sideman. Mm -hmm. Dave Myers was, I mean, he he actually fell asleep on a gig and was still playing. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing a slow blues, you know, and and uh, I. I turn. I'm like, I, and I'm thrilled. You know, I'm like, I can't believe I'm playing harmonica and uh, Dave Myers is playing bass. And then I turn back and I see his head kind of nodding, you know, <laughs> kind of nodding down. And he's like, and he's still playing the bass. <laughs> and um, so and Tail Dragon would say, "You gotta wake up. You gotta wake up. I ain't gonna pay you if you playing sleeping." And so I thought, Jesus, you know, shit, even Dave Myers, you know, legend, you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's struggling playing a $35 gig on the West Side. And he, he was bitter about it, you know. He was, he was very bitter about it, at least that one night, as he explained to me. <laughs> well, I can understand that. Yeah. I still wanted to con continue. Um, and, and, then, and then Tail Dragger had this terrible uh, fatal shooting incident where he landed in prison. And the whole scene at the Delta Fish Market fell apart, and it closed down. Um, and it felt like, you know, there was a lot of bad air, you right. know, bad vibes, bad air had to do with a dispute uh, over the, you know, the Chicago Blues Fest. Some, you know, Tail Dragger said other people, or Tail Dragger told me, you know, other things, you know. He's, anyway, just, just I just thought, okay, this is, you know, this is this is too toxic. And uh, I was freaked out by, by the whole thing. You know, I was very close to uh, Tail Dragger, and I was just shocked and mortified. And, and uh, I, I, I went to Europe uh, shortly after that. I just packed my bags and kicked around Europe for a month and then came back and thought, okay, I think I'm done playing in Chicago. Hmm. I thought, so, I thought I'm going to just continue studying and I'll keep playing blues. Uh, you know, to be honest, I was getting a little bit tired of playing four nights a week too. Right. And, and making very little money. But, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't do it for the money, you know, because I had a part-time job, you know, I mean, but, uh, <laughs> so wait, you're going to school, yeah. you're playing all the time yeah. and you're studying all the time yeah. and you had a part-time job. Yeah. Like at a bookstore, just a couple hours, you know, right. here and there. Yeah. So I don't know, what, people, what, when they're students, they can do all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. When, when things are really good, when you're up there and playing with your heroes, tell me what that meant to you to be in a Chicago club playing the blues with some of your heroes. Well, maybe the biggest honor was, um, playing with, uh, Willie Smith. Mm -hmm. Cause, um, I, w I got to know Willie, uh, who was Muddy's drummer for so long, because uh, in Tail Dragger's band, he hired Kenny Smith, mm -hmm. who was Willie's son. And I 
didn't live far. I lived very close to Willie's uh, house on the south side, just a matter of a few blocks. So every Wednesday, I would pick up Kenny, and he would and take his drum set, and we would go to the west side to play the gigs. And on the way back, I'd drop him off, and usually I'd have a drink or two with the house, uh, or sometimes at least. And you know, I got to meet Willie that way, and and um, he asked me to play some gigs with him on the west side, um, and even asked me to go on a little tour with him. But for some stupid, idiotic reason I didn't go on the tour with him I don't I, I just I regret that but mm. but he he, he uh, you know just playing with him uh, changed my life because then I knew what it was like to play with the kind of a real drummer <laughs> <laughs> I mean the power behind his drumming I just and the, I don't know I just I just it took my he he opened my ears and mind to to blues in a way that I, I thought like, oh, now I, now I see. <laughs> now I see. And then my harmonica playing got, I think, much better, too, as a result of playing with, with him. Because with the drummer who knows the harmonica, I don't know, it, it can, you can just, it's just so easy to blow. Interesting. Yeah. And he was a harmonica player as well. Yeah, so he, and he really, I don't know, he, he I was so sad when he died. I was so sad when he died because, yeah, he got me smoking marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the good things. No, he was a very special person. And I think I've told this to other people, but I just thought that when he passed away, I think the blues changed a great deal. And, and in, in my world, it did because I would see him in different festivals and he was probably one of the biggest music fans I've ever met or blues fans. So mm. when he was playing, you would always see him backstage um, watching the bands before and after his performance. And mm. he was just loving it. you know. Mm. And, and, and I would see him in Norway. I would see him in Chicago. I would see him in Memphis. And when he disappeared, it was very apparent to me that he wasn't mm. around anymore. So, yeah, I, I too miss Willie. He was a special man. Yeah, there was a kind of joy, you know. And yet there was a, he was also so tough. Mm-hmm. And just so uh, brass, just brass tacks, you know, but and so cool. I just thought he was the coolest guy. Just, you know, I mean, cool meaning like he wouldn't get mad. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just cool headed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just a super cool guy. I don't, I mean, I, I really thought like with him, now I know what it's like to be super chill. You know, like how do you really chill out? sit in the van with Willie between sets, you know, that's, that to me was, 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 you know, that, that to me is the best part of, of, of that time. So, and then you went to Japan for a while, did you not? Yeah, I went and to Japan. And played blues for a there. I did. I didn't go there to play blues. I went there to, to further study Japanese language. And then at the same time, I started playing blues there, I hooked up with the local blues scene in Tokyo, which is a very dedicated group of uh, blues fans and musicians <laughs> there and were you accepted there yeah yeah they i they 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 loved it they loved what i was doing and i, I met some guys who loved chicago blues 50s style they called themselves the uh 
I think, what did they call themselves? The, the Chicago Beat. And it was four guys, harp, guitar, bass, drums. And I kind of took that band, you know, as my own and fronted that band, you know. And they loved it over there. They, and I was, you know, it was still the blues. I was just playing exactly, uh, mostly playing harmonica and singing a little bit more. And it was just the stuff that I was just learning from coming out of Chicago. And then, so you started playing guitar around then. And then I presume after that you moved to Toronto. Yeah. When did you decide, hey, I'm going to record an album? Like, what, what was the motivation behind that? Well, I'm, I came to Toronto. Uh, between Tokyo and Toronto, I was in New York for three years, but I didn't play any music, hardly, except uh, I didn't play any blues. I took a break from the blues kind of thing for about three years. But then, and I moved to Toronto, and I didn't even have, I wasn't playing any music for the first five years I was in Toronto. Hmm. Didn't even have a guitar. Just had my harps and my mic and my amp. And was it because you were too busy? I was, was too busy. I was, and I wasn't thinking about music. I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't actively thinking I wanted to play it. I was. I want. I was writing a book. Uh, I was married <laughs> uh, in the early stages of a marriage, mm -hmm. and um, new job, and I. But then, uh, in two thousand six. Um my father died very suddenly i mean out of the blue like sick on monday dead on friday kind of thing yeah and literally and so and um as i was telling you earlier uh he was a painter mm -hmm. and he had been painting all his life and then at the end of his life he was getting into oil painting and uh, really getting into it, and I was really excited to see his art developing in, in, you know, in the medium of oil painting. And then he died, and uh, it was really too bad. I thought, and and then after that, I thought, you know, I should, uh, I should play more music because it, it's my thing. But I, I'd, I'd kind of denied it for a while, or put it aside for right. a while. And I thought I should play and record um, as much as I can while I'm alive. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's scared. It's just yeah. my father's death just scared the pants out of me in some right, right. in some ways. And I thought, you know, he at least, you know, he. I don't want to go um, and not have you know some work behind left behind. And I started really playing in Toronto again, um, or started playing in Toronto for the first time. Um, and first time with a guitar, I presume. First time mostly as a guitar player, yeah. And um, or I still uh, don't even consider myself a guitar player, but playing the guitar, you know, as the main thing. I started practicing every day like crazy. Um, and uh, so this is like you're kind of really still learning the guitar, and then you're also writing songs. Yeah. How easy was that? That process of writing songs. Well, after my father died, I just for the three or four years after that, it was a very kind of 
um, I guess productive time, just all kinds of things just kind of came out mm. uh, lyrically. And I was able to write songs that, you know, that came relatively easy to me. And the guitar playing was just, it just kept coming along and coming along. Uh, and then I met Bharath Rajkumar in Montreal. And uh, when he told me that he he had set up his own recording studio uh, and invited me to record there, I just jumped on it and just did it hmm. in 2011 because uh, I, I trusted him so much, and I still do. So you record the album, and it gets critical acclaim, and you choose to capture the sounds of, I guess, 50s Chicago sound on the first album. That's basically first album, yeah, was really like a muddy with Bareth Rajakumar, you know, I just thought, okay, I just want to get him to play as much harmonica <laughs> as possible because for me he was he is the greatest uh, blues harp player since little Walter. And so I I wrote even some songs thinking about his playing in mine and the model would be, you know, muddy Jimmy Rogers, little Walter and that was, and some other Chicago blues uh, from the 50s, Jimmy Reed, Elmore James, stuff especially. So that first album was really um, kind of in that style. And you captured that style quite well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and then the second album was more varied. Yes. But still of the 50s and 60s. Yeah, the first half is kind of my newer newer influences that I of blues that come from Texas, uh, Frankie Lee, Lightning Hopkins, Frankie Lee Sims, Lightning Hopkins, and some North Mississippi stuff like R.L. Burnside, who I love. And um, So the first half is kind of, you know, that kind of uh, Texas and North Mississippi sound, and the second half is kind of more Chicago blues. So how do you... I, and and I don't know based on 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 your your father's inspiration, you decide to do this. Um, you're still a professor at University of Toronto. You're still writing books and working on major well papers and not, stuff. Well, kind of. I'm 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 starting to work on a second book. Yeah. How do you see your career? Yeah. Like, is this is this still a hobby? Is this like what what is it that you like to do with your music? Because it's not like you can you're not going to quit. I mean, I presume you really, really love teaching as well. Mm. Maybe I shouldn't have assumed that. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I, yeah. I, I, I do. I, you know, I, I, I rely more on teaching than I, than I, I need to do. I feel like I need to do it more than I, than when I started teaching. Cause I really rely on my students. I mean, to listen and give me feedback to make, you know, um, Which is interesting because often musicians talk about relying on the audience to give. It's a, it's a similar thing. It's a similar thing, you know. And so with the ideas that I have, you know, uh, regarding my teaching and research, you know, I need to teach. Otherwise, I'm just in a box isolated. You right. know, I'll go mad. Uh, and so as, as long as I want to, you know, as long as I have that interest in in pursuing my research uh, i i do want to keep teaching and for the music so that but that puts a hamper a bit on my 
on some musical activity. Right. You know, if I was a full-time musician, I could tour more freely. Um, but you know the realities of the finance of full-time musicians. Yes, yes. It's extremely challenging. So, you know, I've always, in some ways, my model is still playing blues in, in the west side of Chicago. And in some ways, I mean, well, in many fundamental ways, in some, I, I don't, I, I just want to play in my own neighborhood, you right. know, play locally in a small club and for people. In some ways that to me is with a band that uh, I, I really, that can help me um, play the music that I want to play. So and the for example, CD is yeah. a vehicle to allow you to do that or to get you to other locations? Yeah, so, I mean, and then, I mean, I, but now I do want to play my music for wider audiences too. You know, I mean, I have, um, it's been really encouraging, I would say. The, the reception of the second album, Poor Lazarus, has been really encouraging because it tells me that people actually like it, and they, you know, and that I could play it for them, and it's given me more confidence in in understanding the uniqueness of that album and the music that I play compared to a lot of a lot of things that are out there apparently, you right. know. Um, so, I, I I mean, I think of the music in two ways. There's one is the musical, the artistic side of it, and then there's the commercial, kind of you know career professional side of it. Um, well, for the career professional stuff, all, I know that I need to I need to build up a, a team, you know, and and uh, that's still it's starting to happen, and through them I'm meeting new people, making you know casting my net wider, meeting um, people in the business, um, and hopefully it's going to uh, introduce me to other musicians that you know, I want to, I'd like to play with too. Right. Yeah. But musically, I mean, you've, you've got really great response from both albums and, and recently I think we, I was contacting you because yeah. somebody had said that the best Canadian blues album, traditional blues album was your album, which is a nice, not even traditional. It wasn't traditional. It was just, it was just they just call it best Canadian blues album. I, couldn't believe, it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean to you? Um. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's uh, I'm I'm honored. Uh, it's considered Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Again, here I am be- between and betwixt uh, you know <laughs> nations. Um, but I- I'm happy. You know, if it's called Canadian, um, it doesn't that that part doesn't mean so that that much to me. I mean, well. I don't know what to say. It's 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 an honor. I mean, technically, I'm still American. I'm, I'm only a permanent resident. Unfortunately, I'm not yet a full re- full citizen. But but if you wanted to play in the states, you could too, right? Without I, too yeah, much trouble. Yeah, I could still. At this I mean, point. you don't have to have a special P two form or whatever. You That's can... true. I would be. Uh, yeah, I should take advantage of that. <laughs> I t- <laughs> and and you do but know some people, a, huh? You know some people in Chicago. Yes, yes, yes. Chicago, Chicago would be one destination for. Like, would you go go back and play some of your stuff? Would that be? I might, I might. I don't know. I feel somehow a little uh, shy 
but I, I would, I'm sure. Yeah. I, to be honest, I, I imagine my music, um, not necessarily being played for a strict blues audience per se all the time. Mm -hmm. Although I think it would be appreciated by blues crowds, but the music that I hope to really make, um, would, would kind of tap into this kind of, um, contemporary interest in blues that, that often, of of people who love music but who aren't necessarily blues lovers, you know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, because I still have a lot of influences in my music, uh, you know, like Tom Waits, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I love Tom Waits' music. I mean I mean I should have said when I was in high school I was listening to Tom Waits. I forgot to mention that. But that was, you know, the big the big one for right. me. And it still kind of seeps in and whatever, you know, so so many people love Tom Waits. Uh, why is that, you know, um, whatever that is, I want to tap into it, you know, <laughs> cause it's, it's yeah, yeah. part of what I, I like too. Um, but I think but, it comes down to Like, I just always think that there's so many bands we can go see and they'd be blown away by, but there are very few bands who write great songs. And mm. I think it always comes down to the great, like the great performers and the great players. Yeah. But I think the song is what, you know, Absolutely, that's, song is king, and and you think about the the stuff that he writes, and yes, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, and so in blues, you know, I think a lot of blues has become kind of uh, too much in emphasizing the virtuosic, mm-hmm. technical, yeah. um, showmanship stuff, which is part of which is always you could say always been part of the blues, right. Um, but the guitar solos have gotten way longer. Oh yeah, the solos, the wanking, <laughs> yeah. the, the wank, uh, the wank level, um, and it's maybe de-emphasize the song, you know. So I mean, in my case, I'm not a virtuoso, you know, um, but I, I I know the groove. I mean, <laughs> so the good song for me, uh, I agree, has to be about the song. Um, but what makes the song, uh, for me is the groove. So you get the right groove and then you're on your way to a good song. My last question to you is where do you go from here? What's next? Well, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, Latin music and African music. Really? (laughs) Um, I love the, you know, the Mali and Griot music like Ali Farcature mm-hmm. and I love Latin music of all kinds and they're going to find their way into my blues. So that's, that's one thing that's happening. And have you started writing your next album? A few things. Yeah. It's getting funkier. It's kind of like following Chicago blues in some ways from the fifties into the sixties. So it's definitely becoming a little funkier. And, you know, I want, I want to, that's always been part of my plan, except I haven't recorded it like that. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, hopefully I can just, uh, you know, play, uh, some blues and work this uh, new album, you know, in the next year and play uh, for some new audiences. There's some, uh, interest, uh, out West in Canada and BC and Alberta. I'm really 
happy to hear that they like it out there and so I want to play for them out there and uh, I'm on sabbatical next year I don't have to teach so I got a free year coming up I'm figuring out what I'm going to be doing I might go back to Japan for a little while to uh, complete this uh, new book project or I'll do something else and hopefully start thinking about yeah I'm thinking already about a third album wow it's a real pleasure talking to you thank uh, you likewise thank you so, so much for doing me. this yeah